Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Okay, good morning. It's we're getting uh, maybe a, a a slightly early start here, but that's okay. Um, sorry, I just got a text from Randy Regeer. I was just checking to see what he said. Um, so, um, would somebody be willing to uh, open us up in prayer this morning and pray for Mark? Cell had was when was this? But when did he have it? A couple days ago, had uh, a, a knee surgery uh, procedure done, um, so include him in prayer. Somebody want to open us up? Okay, Sam? Thank you, Father God, for this great day you've given us the opportunity to worship you and to know who you are in a deeper way, Lord. We thank you for your mercy and your grace in our lives and the sunshine you brought for us this morning, Lord, and the warm weather coming, Lord. Uh, we just would give you praise this morning. Uh, we also lift up Mark, Lord, in his uh, knee surgery, Lord Jesus, that uh, he'll have full recovery, Lord, and, and you'll give him peace and comfort, Lord, uh, free of any kind of frustration and any kind of limitations he may have, Lord, and just let him know that your hand is on his life, Lord. And in the Sunday school class this morning, Lord, that we, our minds and our spirits will be opened up to you, Holy Spirit, and to teach us and to bring us in a new way of living and uh, open our minds uh, to see things differently for your, for your good, Lord. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you for everything you've given us. We know uh, and recognize that uh, you're the only reason that we have a chance. You're the only hope we have in the blood you shed for us on the cross. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Sam. Uh, real quickly, just wanted to point out, if you did not get a copy of the notes from last week, I did send that uh, diagram thing to Lindsay, um, so she has... The, uh, that on there. I also wanted to point out um, Kevin, Kevin, right? Kevin Greer. Kevin Greer, Kevin Greer uh, came up to me last week, and we, he and I were talking a little bit afterwards. If you, if you look in the lower, uh, I'd be lower right. <laughs> held it like this, and it's like that's left. No, in the lower right hand corner, uh, it says unfulfilled, and he brought up. The, the uh, idea that oftentimes when you are ministering in one way or another to somebody who has, um, in, in this case, has money and they're choosing the, the secular, uh, f- or secular pathway, they oftentimes are very fulfilled. And you know, he said, you have unfulfilled on here. In other words, it seems like they never sense their need. And that is exactly the point. This is not uh, in reality. Uh, this is, well, let me rephrase that. This is not in their perceived reality. This is their reality. So everything that you see on here is how God would label them. So another way to think about this is remember in uh, um, the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon, who was the richest, wisest man, he had everything. And what did he say at the end of the day? He said, vanity, vanity, or empty, empty is everything. It's all meaningless, the idea of unfulfilled. So that's what that, I just wanted to point that out because I think what Kevin said, you know, in, in practicality, in everyday living, if you are speaking to somebody who is incredibly wealthy, they have, you know, boats and toys and things like that, they oftentimes feel like, well, I don't need 
Jesus. You know, that's for you people that, that don't have anything. And that, I just wanted to clarify, that wasn't exactly what I was saying uh, in that. Okay, so today we are going... Yes, sir. Can I add to that? Yeah. Because what, what you said also, the reality of it is just, they think that that's it. Mm-hmm. What they have here is it. Yeah. This isn't it. Exactly. Right. And we even have Jesus and, right. and that's what he wants. He wants all of us right. to be him. And just one other clarifying comment that I will make. This is the condition of people's souls when they have been enlightened by the gospel. In other words, they have come, as the Bible would say, to the place of repentance, and then they have made a choice, either the sacred or the secular, and, and that's the condition they were in. Kathy, you were going to say something? Yeah, and I, I was actually listening. I always like to go back and you probably shouldn't do this, but I do it anyways. I go back and listen just to make sure there's nothing that I need to clarify. Remember, money was used there metaphorically. It's not talking about you know coins and dollar bills. It's actually talking about spiritual capital. So just keep that in mind. Okay, today is brought to you by the word worship, if we were Sesame Street. Um, So I thought it would be kind of fun um, to have somebody sing. No, I'm just kidding. Um, When you think of this word that is on the board behind me, worship, what comes to mind? And I want, I mean... This can be as ludicrous as, as maybe you have, have thought at one time in your life, or just let's kind of um, brainstorm and get some ideas of, of how, whether it is society thinks about worship, how you think about worship, how the church thinks about worship. Just uh, when you hear that word, what are, what are the ideas, things that come to mind? Say that again. Singing. Okay, singing. So Terry's going to be the volunteer to sing for. <laughs> Allegiance. Okay. Lifestyle. Lifestyle. Praise. Praise. Individuality. Individuality. What do you mean? I'm going to put you on the spot, Joyce. Um, well, I think you know that there are some people who feel that worship is just walking in the countryside and worshiping nature, mm-hmm. or worshiping themselves, or worshiping all their toys. Yep. So worship. Okay, so an individual's expression of what they view of worship. Okay, great. I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. But then there's corporate. Yep. No, but I'm just saying that we're looking for different words. Individuality. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just wanted to clarify what you because I thought that's what you were yeah. thinking, but yeah, I like that. Adoration. What else? Adoration. Yep. How about communication? Communication. Okay, Jim. I'm going to ask you to elaborate. Okay. I wasn't thinking that you were thinking that, so I'm glad I had you clarify. So that idea, just as when we're in relationship, we say hi to one another. We want to know how. So it is that idea. It is the uh, interpersonal communication between two beings. Paul talked about praying in 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not a, oh, wow, it's Sunday morning. Yeah. Or it's, it's my devotional time. Right. You know, my devotional time is a 24-7. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. What else? Surrender. Surrender. Um, so let's spend just a few minutes thinking about how the world would define this. Okay, individuality. <laughs> I would think that corporate singing would be the primary thing that the world needs. Okay, singing. Anybody in here grow up Catholic? Spend time in the Catholic Church? So in the Catholic Church, uh, you spend a lot of time doing various things. And... and I'm I'm kind of singling out Catholics here. Uh, we could also include in this Lutheran, Anglican, Orthodox, any of those. So, what did you spend a lot of time doing? Um, are you talking about like kneeling. Okay, so you would spend a lot of time kneeling, uh, reciting. Uh, the, in other words, there would be congregational, uh, excuse me, leader-led things that the congregation would respond to. Uh, confession would be a part of that. Uh, liturgical service. So, so you throw all of those elements in there. A lot of times the world will define worship as those acts that we participate in around a body of, of we would say, believers or around the church. Okay? Any other thoughts? Yeah. I think they do a lot of praying. Okay. Praying? Yep. Yep. Praying in the sense of, Lord, help me with this test. I didn't study for it and I can't afford an F, right? And, and in that, they would say that is worship. Or, Lord, help me get out of this foxhole in war. Um, Lord, help me, you know, it's ice, the road's icy and, and I'm driving. So they turn to God in a moment of desperation, a moment of need. It might be they get a cancer diagnosis and for the first time they they would turn their attention. Okay, good. Any other, any other thoughts? Work. Work. I'm going to ask you to define that. Uh, some people just worship their work. Okay. And some people think that that's how they get closer to God also is by what they do. Mm-hmm. And that's not it at all. But yeah. So they worship that. They worship their work. They worship the jobs. And that takes place of, of, of God. Yes. Yes. Do you think they even really realize that? Um, I, in the world that, that, so you think they're even held accountable? I, I I don't think that they are aware that they are doing it. Yeah. Um, another one, as Galen was talking about this, I thought just because it's going on right now, and this might offend some of you, but sports. I mean, there are people that are so wrapped up in whether it is the participation of or viewing of. So, yes, sir. Um, I think the world would define it as a compulsive desire for whether it's work or money mm-hmm. or sports mm-hmm. or church. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, okay. Uh, that was kind of the next direction that I was going in this sense. Um, <laughs> we are um, We are addicted to worship. Because of our creation, because of the way that we were created, we are addicted to worship. We are going to worship something. 
someone, something, and it's just a matter of what we're going to choose to put our affections on. So it's really interesting. This, this topic is going to have um, varying ways in which we could think about this and apply it. Obviously, we're going to apply it to the, to the sense of relating to the greatness of God. So I want to try and couch this now, if I can, in what we have been looking at. We started off our time together looking at um, three attributes of God that display to us His greatness. These things that make God who He is, and yet the only way that we know about them is because He tells us. We don't have the, the infinite receptivity to be able to, to figure out that God is holy or God is great. Okay, We only know those things because He has told us. Now, part of the way he communicates that to us, Psalm 19 says, is through his creation. The heavens declare that when, when Jim was talking about communication, that's kind of what I was thinking is sometimes we just speak back to God who he is. Um, so I'm glad I had you clarify. So the heavens declare the glory of God. They, they depict to us his character. And so we looked at the holiness of God, as a matter of fact, we called it the traumatic holiness of God, the awesome transcendence. When we talk about the transcendence of God, what are we, what are we talking about? Everybody looks down. Don't call on me. What is the transcendence of God? Okay. One thing I, otherness, one thing I would like for you to think about is that to equate transcendence is that verse in Isaiah where he says, you sit enthroned above the circle of the earth. Remember, this was the idea that he holds the universe in his hands. He holds the waters in his hands. He has weighed the mountains. But that idea that as you look at at God's creation, I don't care where you are. Our daughter's in San Diego this morning, but she was driving through. uh, She she was in Phoenix and, you know, telling us about mountains and things like that. Um, All of these things, they look so great, so majestic, right? God's above them because God created them. So it is that distance between the massiveness and the impressiveness of what we see in creation and the God who created it. And then we looked at the sovereignty of God, the absolute sovereignty of God. And remember, uh, I'm going to drill this quote into your head. So that when you are faced with difficulty, you will recall this. Charles Spurgeon said that in the sovereignty of God, when we are suffering, when we are struggling, it is the pillow on which we lay our head in in, uh, tumultuous times. The sovereignty of God. We know that he is on the throne, that he is in control. We may not like our circumstances. That, That is not, it's not like, you know, this is my pillow. You know, this is God's pillow. But we are laying our head on the fact that God is in control. And then we also looked last week at this great invitation, how God invites us in and says, come, be part of what I'm doing. And he does this to all of mankind. We, we used last week to sort of couch the invitation in Isaiah chapter 55 to Israel as an invitation to all of mankind. It, it really is representative of the entirety of the Bible where God is saying, come to me, all you who are weary, and, and if you're seeking rest, I have rest for you. Okay, And so we saw this great invitation. 
And now we begin to look at worship. We're going to eventually end in Isaiah 58, but we're not going to start there. So I don't want you, if you already have your Bible open to Isaiah 58, I'm going to ask you to turn it. So, uh, you know, you might want to put your finger there, or shove a piece of paper in there, or have your, your significant other hold it or something. I don't know. But we will get there. So what I thought would be fun to do would be to discuss worship from the standpoint of three things. Number one is a conventional wisdom aspect. So I looked up uh, a multitude of definitions and I tried to boil them down to the ones that just kept coming up over and over and over again. So, and, and all three of these happen to be in Merriam-Webster. Um, where it says this, um, a reverence offered a divine being or supernatural power, also an act of expressing such reverence. So notice the twofold definition here. It is the reverence, it is the, the inherent uh, feelings, um, all of those things, and then it is also the action. It is the act of expressing that reverence. Secondly, a form of religious practice with its creed and ritual. When I read that one, that's why I asked about the Catholicism, because that is one of the cardinal doctrines of Orthodox Christianity, is that the way that we participate with God is in our ritual nature or the participation in the creed. The reason that people are catechized in, into the Catholic Church is you have to know what you believe in order to practice what you believe in. And so they would do that. And then the third one, an extravagant respect or admiration for or devotion to an object of esteem. Now, having heard those three definitions, so the idea of reverence as a, as a feeling and an act, a form of religious practice, and then an extravagant respect do you think that captures the essence of biblical worship? Why or why not? So this is sort of the way the world looks at worship, defines it. Do you think that captures it? I think it leaves out, as Jim was saying, it leaves out the communication piece. Okay. It's not here. Leaves out the relationship part of the, of the uh, worship relationship, Yeah. So I will tell you, I was fascinated um, as I began. I, the other, I told you I, I wanted to look at it from that perspective. Then I looked at biblical words in the Old Testament dealing with worship. Um, turn to Psalm 95. Um, Psalm 95 And we will look at verse 6. Psalm 95, 6 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep under His care. Now you read that and you think, well, that's it. first of all, does anybody's version say anything other than come, let us worship and bow down? That's the most common translation that I've found. Um, what it actually says in the original is, original is, come let us bow down and let us bow down. In other words, the, the, the depiction of bowing down is used in the sense of worship. So it is something that even though I'm, I'm doing something, 
it is demonstrating something that is internal, that is within me. Something that has been built in relationship that I, I sense and I observe and I feel, and so therefore I do something physically in order to, to do that. And so uh, as I went through various verses in the Old Testament, this common theme kept coming back, and that was to prostrate oneself in adoration, to form as in like an idol, or to work or to serve and to bow down. It was this constant repetition about the idea of bowing down, prostrate, prostrating oneself. And I was fascinated, fascinated by this. I think I just said prostrating. Prostrating oneself. Uh, <laughs> that was not a medical diagnosis there uh, <laughs> or a medical test that one should do. Um, you ever just realize your mind is wandering while you're talking? Yeah, that, that's what was happening there. Sorry, Elijah's going to be... No, I'm just thinking poor Elijah this week, he's going to be like, delete, 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 uh, as he puts together this recording. Okay, Elijah, start recording again. Uh, so the idea that, that we are bowing down, we are prostrating ourselves before God in such a way that we are honoring Him, okay? Um, then in the New Testament, um, there were several passages that I looked at uh, Matthew, we're, we're not going to turn to these two. Matthew 2, uh, when the Magi came, it says they came and they worshipped uh, the child. Uh, John chapter 4, um, where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well in Samaria. And remember her question, where's the right place to worship? And does anybody remember what Jesus says to her? There is a time coming when... You know, you'll, you won't worship here, you won't worship in Jerusalem, but true worshipers will worship how? Spirit and truth. And we read that and we're like, well, that's mostly unhelpful. What in the world does that mean? And so uh, in, in trying to come up with some kind of an idea, uh, I found one other uh, passage that I thought is uh, good to look at. So turn to Romans chapter 12. Very... Uh, um, common passage, Romans chapter 12. Verse 1 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So here, Paul says, the way that you truly worship God is through the presentation of your body. Um, now again, I don't want to. I don't want to get sidetracked here uh, because we want to eventually get to Isaiah. Um, but the idea here again is to do reverence to, and uh, this word worship literally means I go down to my knees in honor and reverence. I fall to my knees in honor and reverence, and again to prostrate oneself in homage. There, there is sort of this idea, if you combine the Old Testament and the New Testament, the idea um, that there is something sacred. There is something honorable about God. There is something to be revered. His person demands reverence, right? Uh, the psalmist says, uh, the, excuse me, the, the writer of Proverbs says, that the something of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Fear. The fear of God. 
And again, it's that idea of holy reverence, that idea that he's not like, or I am not like him. He's different than me. But there is their secondary idea, which is the idea of service. And so I want to give you a two-word definition for worship, and it is this, sacred service. And I think if we begin to think of worship in that sense, it will help us in our uh, development of, of trying to see worship in everyday life, uh, beginning to... <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to write that at such an angle. Um, this idea of sacred service is, is in essence what we are called to be and called to do. To offer everything that we are all the time in honor to God. Basically like, um, like Samuel was offered to God by his mother, that's how we should be, I think, is what the author is driving at here. Now, here's a second question for you, and uh, this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. When is worship to occur? Now, I don't want to get into an argument over whether or not it happens on Saturday or Sunday or should. That's, that's not what I mean. When should worship occur? Always, all the time, continually. Do you do it? No. Why not? I think you do it one way or another, whether you know it or not. Okay. And I think Sam is right. Um, it is either offered to the sacred or it is offered to the secular. Remember how we looked last week in, in this idea. We, we either pay attention to the football games or the basketball games or ourselves or our, our boat or... I don't I can't think of a bunch of stuff right now but you get the picture. We either focus on the things of right here right now or we focus on eternity. And that is the subject that Jesus talks about the majority of the time in the gospels. This idea that you you can't live this divided life. Now, what I would like to do is demonstrate for you how that fact um essentially is at the heart of Isaiah 58. But we're going to do it by not looking at Isaiah 58. We're just going to read Isaiah 58 at the end. And I think when you read it, it's going to come alive to you. Um, This is how I studied this week. So hopefully it works for you. Um, Turn in your Bible, if you're still in Romans, just back up a little bit to Mark. So you have Matthew, Mark, um, in the New Testament, it's the second book of the New, New Testament. And by the way, uh, there is absolutely no shame ever in looking at the table of contents in the front of your Bible. I have to do that because I'll get, you know, there are times when I'm uh, trying to find an obscure passage in the prophets and I'm like, no, let's see, where, where in the world is, is uh, Amos at? can't remember. And so I have to go to the table of contents. So please don't ever think if I have to look it up that there is something that is wrong. That um, No big deal. So Mark chapter 2, um, and I would like to look at about verse 23 and following. Um, the title in my Bible is Lord of the Sabbath. Mark chapter 2, verse 23 says, On the Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, 
Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and also gave some to his companions? Then he told them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Now here's what I would like you to think of in your head. Switch the word Sabbath with the word worship. Worship, uh, if we read this, the worship was made for man and not man for the worship. Now, Sabbath is a representation of a time when the Israelites were supposed to come before God and offer a, a sacred time, right? A, a time away from work. And we're going to look at some of, the, some of the particulars of what they were instructed to do. And when they didn't, what the results were. But the idea is that over and over again, Jesus gets in this confrontation with the religious leaders over the Sabbath. That is almost uh, without, maybe money is the number one, but number two is probably the Sabbath. The, the biggest issue that Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes about is their misuse and abuse of the Sabbath. And so here, Jesus is saying that the Sabbath was, was made for you to demonstrate something to you, but you don't have to be subservient to it. So in reality, if you were to, to draw it, uh, in most cases, people do it this way. You know, they, they put man below the Sabbath. And in reality, what God is saying, or Jesus is saying here, is no, you are above the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made to provide you with a respite, a time to simply draw away. But in your drawing away, you're not drawing away to nothingness. You're drawing away to relationship with me, worship and honor with me. Um, so this was something that is a, a constant um, sense of, what do I want to say? Constant sense of, of distress between the Pharisees, the scribes, and Jesus. They, remember how many times he would heal on the Sabbath? And they would say, well, why are you doing that? You see, they wanted to find a way to accuse them. Now, how is it that they viewed the Sabbath? He did nothing. I mean, there was no physical labor whatsoever. How they viewed the Sabbath. Okay. Do nothing? Is that how, in actuality, they viewed it? Okay, oftentimes they would use it as an opportunity to draw attention to themselves. See, that is really the crux of the matter that we're going to run into in Isaiah. So just kind of keep that question percolating in your mind. So let's look at how they were supposed to view the Sabbath, because that's what uh, Galen is getting at. So turn to Exodus chapter 23. Uh, Exodus, the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. And we're going to look at the 23rd chapter. Um, in Exodus chapter 20, so that's the listing out of the Ten Commandments. I'm just going to remind you of this. God says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. 
Keep it set apart. And remember, that's where he talks about, I, I worked for six days, but I rested on the seventh. So you're supposed to rest. But then the idea becomes, okay, well, what exactly is the Sabbath rest? And then God comes up with this other, I shouldn't say God comes up with, God stated to them another idea. And that is that every seventh year, you should let the land rest. Why? Rejuvenate itself, renewing. Both of those are the wrong answer. (laughs) Exodus chapter 23. And I will tell you, I would have said the same thing. Exodus chapter 23, verse 10. says, Sow your land for six years and gather its produce, but during the seventh year you are to let it rest and leave it uncultivated, so that... The poor among your people may eat from it, and the wild animals may consume what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Do your work for six days, but rest on the seventh, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female slave as well as the resident alien may be refreshed. So the the, the weekly Sabbath was for refreshing and renewal, but that seventh year Sabbath was so that the poor could eat those who were strangers among them. So the idea is, um, Randy will understand this. The rest of you are going to be like, what in the world are you talking about? We talk about in farming volunteer things. So Randy plants wheat this year, next year. A wheat crop is going to come up. He didn't plant it, but it's still going to come up. It's volunteer. So the seed fell to the ground, it dies, it germinates, and it comes up. We call that volunteer. And the idea is, God says, let that volunteer come up. Whatever the grain is, I don't care. Because it can become a source of food for those who don't have the ability to do it. They can go gather that up and it will be a a provision for them. What I want you to see is the Sabbath became a provision for those that were least worthy, least uh, going back to that idea of money and no money, this, this time literally using that demonstration of money, no money to provide for them. Now, to me, that's fascinating. That's God's welfare system. God says, there should be a time when you set aside, in other words, you work diligently for six years and you set aside your savings, but then on that seventh year, you don't partake of it so that those who are around you who are in need can actually be fulfilled. Does that make sense? Now, what did they do? What did the Israelites do? Did they honor that? Okay. So they would they they would come up with all of these laws to say, well, you can do this, but you can't do this. You can't walk. I think it was two thousand cubits. I don't know how far that would be, but if you somebody knows what a cubit is, you could calculate it very quick, about eighteen inches. You know, as long as you're not. As long as you're not walking more than that distance, it's okay. You can't carry your donkey. Remember, Jesus says, if you see your donkey, you're going to pull it out, uh, but you can't carry it. You, you know, you can't care for the Samaritan on the Sabbath. And you have all these things where they would say, well, you can do this, but you can't do that. Rather than understanding that the whole point of the Sabbath was about something else. It was about changing our focus from ourself to God and to others. 
Remember when Jesus said, we, uh, I think Mark preached this sermon just a few weeks ago. He was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? Love God, love others. That, that would be true of the Sabbath idea as well. In honoring the Sabbath is to love God and love others. And if we are not doing that on the Sabbath, God would say to Israel, then you're violating the Sabbath. If you're not loving others or you're not loving God, then you're violating the Sabbath. Does that make sense? So, so what we have is in Israel, um, God having to withdraw his favor from Israel because of their abuse of the Sabbath. And I want to show you that because to me, this is fascinating. This is how seriously God took it. Okay, so this is going to get a little bit difficult. Find in your Bibles the book of Jeremiah. Uh, it's going to be in the middle of the prophets. So if you get to Psalms, keep going. Uh, you're not there yet. And, and we want to find Jeremiah chapter 25. And I promise you, we're almost ready to go to Isaiah. If you're like, we're never going to get there. So Jeremiah is a prophet, and Jeremiah is prophesying to who? What nation, first of all? Okay, Israel. Uh, He is prophesying to Israel, not to any of the other surrounding nations. And what is the crux of his prophecy? Does anybody know? Jeremiah is often called the lamenting prophet because his prophecy was about something that was very, very sad. Does anybody know what it was? The destruction of Israel. The coming uh, abandonment, desolation that was going to happen because God was going to withdraw His favor from from them. Uh, at least temporarily. So, so Jeremiah 25, verse 1 says, This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Now, contextually, this is going to be a prophecy um, around the time when Nebuchadnezzar is going to be stirred up. And who was Nebuchadnezzar? Okay, the king of Babylon. And what did he do? Okay. (laughs) He has a lot of crazy dreams. But he comes and carries off Daniel. And then we tend to remember them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Carries them off into Babylon. So the whole story of Daniel. So you see how this prophecy is stacking up with Daniel as well as Isaiah. Uh, Verse 2, the prophet Jeremiah spoke concerning all the people of Judah and all the residents of Jerusalem as follows. From the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me. So for 23 years, Jeremiah, you talk about a exercise in futility. He has gone to the people of Israel and said the same thing. I'm glad it was him and not me because I probably would have quit. Uh, So for 23 years I have come before you and I've offered this prophecy, but you have not obeyed. The Lord sent all his servants, the prophets, to you time and again, but you have not obeyed or even paid attention. Remember that uh, story, that parable that Jesus tells about the vineyard? 
and he sends his workers and how they murdered them and he killed them. This is the reality of that parable, okay? Verse 5, he announced, Turn each of you from your evil way of life and from your evil deeds. Live in the land the Lord gave to you and your ancestors long ago and forever. Do not follow other gods to serve them and to bow and worship to them. And do not anger me by the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. But you have not obeyed me. This is the Lord's declaration with the result that you have angered me by the work of your hands and brought disaster on yourself. Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies says, because you have not obeyed my words, I'm going to send for all the families of the north. This is the Lord's declaration and send for my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will bring against bring them against this land, against its residents, and against all these surrounding nations, and I will completely destroy them and make them an example of horror and scorn and ruins forever. I will eliminate the sound of joy and gladness from them, the voice of the bridegroom, the sound of the millstones. This whole land will become a desolate ruin, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for how many years? Why in the world does God say 70 years? That seems like a random number. So I'm going to walk you through. We won't turn and look at this. In the book of Daniel, Daniel says, Daniel is, uh, uh, let's see, it's uh, Daniel chapter 9 or Daniel chapter 10. I can't quite remember which one it is. But Daniel is reading Jeremiah. And he realizes that for 70 years they were going to be in captivity. Well, it's getting close to the 70-year mark. And so he's praying and he is confessing to God the sins of the people and the sins of his nation. And God sends an angel to him and he says, Daniel, I'm going to tell you what's about to happen. And he tells Daniel at that time that 70 sevens have been decreed for the people. Now, I'll let Elijah deal with what 77s means. But if you calculate that out, 70 times 7 is what? 490. So in essence, what God is saying, you have been, for 490 years, you have been violating my Sabbath. Every seventh year, you have violated that. And so the first thing you're going to do is go into captivity for 70 years. But in Daniel, he says that's not the end of it. It's just the beginning of it. And so you have God saying to the people of Israel, I am tired of you violating my Sabbath. And then in 1 Corinthians, uh, we won't turn there, chapter 10, Paul says, these things happen to us as an example that we might pay attention, that we might look at these things. And so in reality, the, the children of Israel had had violated the Sabbath by hypocrisy. They were hypocritical in their observance or the abuse of Sabbath in prayer, in caring for the poor, in their alms, in their giving. Uh, I, I believe the sermon today is about true and honest giving, if I remember right. What is it that God is asking of His people? I promise you we are almost, I'm almost done with my part. What is it that God is asking for his, from His people? Micah 6, 8. What's that say? Can anybody quote that? He has shown you, O oh man... Go ahead. Keep justice above 
Okay, he has shown you, O man, what he requires, and that is to, to seek justice or to act justly, seek mercy, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's all God ever wanted from the children of Israel. Now, I want you to keep all of that stuff in mind, their violation of the Sabbath, the idea that they were hypocritical towards it in the sense that um, they saw it as self-serving, not as honoring God. And go to Isaiah chapter 58. (laughs) You're like, this is the longest introduction ever. Isaiah chapter 58. God tells Isaiah, cry out loudly, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me day after day and delight to know my ways like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the justice of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight in the nearness of God. Let's stop there for a moment. They delight in the nearness of God. We, we gave a word to nearness when we were going through. We were talking about the transcendency of God and how He is great and He is above. We talked about His imminence, the fact that He is near. And the idea here in this text is... Israel so longed for the comfort and the compassion that God showed to them, that the individual works, that they forgot about His greatness and His majesty. They forgot about the fact that their God was a consuming fire. They only wanted the mercy of God and not the absolute holiness of God, the the traumatic holiness of God. And so here he says, they ask me for righteous judgments. They delight in the nearness of God. Verse 3, they say, why have we fasted, but you have not seen? Do you see the hypocrisy in that? Why did I spend a whole day or 40 days, I don't care what the time frame is, not eating and you didn't pay any attention to me? That was the essence of how they were fasting. We have denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. Look, you do as you please on the day of your fast and oppress all your workers. Notice God says, I don't care what you're not eating. I care how you're treating other people. Verse 4, you fast with contention and strife. You strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. And then he begins to describe what their fast was like. Will the fast I choose be like this, a day for a person to deny himself, to bow his head like a reed and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? In other words, did I ask you for one day to humble yourself? Or did I ask you to humble yourself always? The idea is, I ask you to humble yourself all the time, but you're not doing that. Um, Lost my place. That happens often. Will you call this fast a day? uh, Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Verse 6, isn't this the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke. 
Is, is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your home, to clothe the naked when you see him, and to not ignore your own flesh? I don't know about you, but does that sting? To think of all the times that I have set aside time, whether it is to focus on God, and at the end of the day I realize I've spent the whole day focusing on me. Not that I was focused on God, which caused me to, to, to move out and to think about other people and, and to say, how can I, can I serve them? How can I in some way be a blessing to them? Verse 8, then your light will appear like the dawn and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. At that time when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, he will say, here I am. If you get rid of the yoke among you, the finger pointing and malicious speaking, and if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine in the darkness and your noon and your night will be like noonday. Now here's what I want to challenge you with. Tie this in with worship. Is our worship just about us and how it makes us feel? Even, even in a spiritually selfish way, how it makes me feel about my relationship with God? Or should it be in some way elevating the personhood of God, His greatness, His majesty in such a way that it calls me and challenges me to be different, to treat people differently? To move in humility and, and to, to try and make somebody else's life better because of my worship of God. Um, verse 11, The Lord will always lead you and satisfy you in a parched land and strengthen your bones. You will be like a watered garden and like a spring whose water never runs dry. Some of you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will restore the foundations laid long ago. You will be called the repairer of broken walls, the restorer of streets where people live. Verse 13, If you keep from desecrating the Sabbath, you may ask, well, how, how do we do that? From doing whatever you want on my holy day. If you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own way, seeking your own pleasure, or talking business. Ooh, I've been guilty of that. Then you will delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride over the heights of the land and let you enjoy the heritage of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what I want to leave you with is this. There should be a sense when we come into, uh, into church on uh, any given day that we are passing from the secular into the sacred. That like Moses, when he confronted the burning bush, we recognize this is holy ground. And that is not to say that we can't enjoy the community of one another. As a matter of fact, I think we should. But there should come a point in time when we recognize we are appearing before a traumatically holy God who is awesomely transcendent and absolutely sovereign.
there should be this recognition when we come in that our God is a consuming fire. He dwells in unapproachable light and no one has ever seen Him except the Son who came to show us the Father. And true worship should be, in a sense, awe-inspiring. Not comforting. Does that make sense? It should leave us with this sense of, whoa. Not, oh boy, that was great. You know, let's go get candy bars or whatever. I, I think many times in our, in our worship, we, we begin to like the nearness of God, but we forget about the greatness of God. And I think in that is the the biggest problem that the nation Israel faced. And my fear is that you and I are guilty of that same thing. That's, again, why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, these things happen as a warning to us. And he uses that word, not as an example, but as a warning. Does that make sense? So again, I want to quote for you Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You see, I think when we, are, when we are doing those things Monday through Saturday, our worship will be awe-inspiring. And that I don't want you to think, oh, I have to be afraid to come to church. That's not what I'm saying. But I think there should be a recognition of the majesty of God, of the greatness of God, Should we embrace his invitation? Absolutely. But recognize that we're not worthy. We come open hands because we have no money. We just recognized our thirst. Does that make sense? Comments, questions. I've been talking for a long time. We have uh, 10, 15 minutes here. What are you thinking? I see heads nodding. And then I also see blank stares, so I'm not sure what you're thinking. The fact that Jeremiah was doing that for 23 years and people didn't heed the warning. Mm. Sounds much like humanity yeah. today. I mean, we have prophecy right here spelled out and it's mm. coming to fruition. And as I say, in the latter days, people yeah. will go to and fro just like they did in the time. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, 23 years seems like a long time, but how about... 5,000, 6,000 years that the heavens have been declaring the glory of God and mankind has been ignoring that. Earlier when you were looking at a psalm, Mm -hmm. if I understood you right, you said, even though it says, let us come and bow down and worship, but in in the original, it says, bow down and bow down. I don't know if you really elaborated on that much. Can you do that a little bit? So, the idea is um, oftentimes there were words that were used, and when you double them up, it, it creates emphasis, first of all. That's one thing. And the, the bowing down was a word that came to be synonymous. It was the act that you did that became synonymous with this new word, worship. We do this all the time. Come, let's worship. And we mean by that, let's sing a song. Okay? And, and so I think that's what the, the authors 
saying there. Now, in our sense, I would tell you there is probably... Let me rephrase this. There should be more bowing down and less hand-raising in our worship. In order to truly honor the greatness of God, when we stand before Him in eternity, what are we going to do? What, is the, what does the Scripture say? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And, and I'm not, I don't think you should do that in some sort of liturgical way or that... Catholic, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when we are gripped by His awesomeness, we recognize our unawesomeness, our lack thereof. And so we bow in reverence and we say, God. now that might be on our knees, hands uplifted. There's nothing wrong with raising your hands. Don't, please don't hear that. What I'm saying is make sure that in our worship, hand raising to me has the idea of look at me. In our culture, it's to get attention, right? In class, we raise our hands, and so it's to get attention. It's not in submission like it was in their culture. In, in the Eastern culture, raising of hands was a recognition of submission. Why did the Romans make their committed person carry the cross? Does anybody know the answer to this? So they would take the cross beam, they would tie it on their back with their hands outstretched like this, does anybody know why they did that? And they would make him carry it. It was an act of submission that they said, uh, I, I got nothing left to fight with. And, and so in that sense, that raising of hands is a, was a cultural way of signifying submission. In our culture, I'm not sure that it always has that same um, intent, maybe. So... I don't want to get into a theology of worship because I'll get myself in trouble. I was thinking about that verse that you just shared that, you know, the day will come when God, you know, we choose to worship God or enable to worship God, I guess might be even a better way of saying that. Now, but there will be a day when He will be revealed fully and there will be no fully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just one more thought on what Kathy said. In that day, all men, regardless of their belief in God or not, will bow the knee. So it's not in the act that worship happens. It's internally, right? It's not in what I do. All, every, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Those things are not worship. It is the heart that is in, in desperate need of that God and clinging to what that God offers is the one that worships. So, anything else? So, just uh, I want to clarify our schedule from here on out. So, next week we're going to do an application time of these past two things that we've discussed. Then we have... Two final classes. So we're going to do one. Uh, it's called My Identity with God. So we're basically just going to talk about who we are in light of God. Um, but then the last week, I really, you know, I had it down as application for that. But 
there's really nothing. I mean, that's really what the my identity class is. So I thought what we would do that last week, um, which I think is Palm Sunday, or maybe the week before Palm Sunday, um, I thought we would just have kind of a question and answer time, just an open, in case there was something as we went through, we I was unclear about and you want to ask, or uh, I want to give you guys the opportunity to share as well, things that God has taught you through this study. Um, So we will do that, our very final uh, session together, and then we will be done. And that way we'll be done in time for Easter. Um, And as you will hear today, there's going to be a Good Friday service. Uh, So one on Thursday, one on Friday. <clears throat> so don't get me started on that. <laughs> I was I was sitting listening to that Thursday night, and I was so confused. I'm like, wait a minute, that's Thursday. How can you have a Good Friday service on Thursday? That's Monday, Thursday. But yeah, don't go don't go down there, Mike. So let's pray, shall we? Father God, um, we are in awe of your presence, of who you are. And God, it's not because of what you have done, but it's because of your nature. It's because of who you are. Too often we do not pause to remember your character. God, we get sidetracked because of our life, because of things that are going on around us. God, we, we just look past you. Forgive us for those moments when in our foolishness we have simply taken your presence as something lightly. God, help us to approach you with confidence, but confidence not because of us, because of Jesus Christ, because of his righteousness that we now have. God, we know we can come before you and not fear destruction. But God, you are an awesome God. You are an awe-inspiring God, worthy to be worshipped. And so in our hearts, we, we bow down and in reverence and adoration, God, we look to people around to serve and to give our lives in service to you, not in service to ourselves, but in service to others, so that we might honor you as you want to be honored. Father, help us to demonstrate and display your glory in such a way that it does truly change us and change those around us. We pray these things in your powerful, matchless name. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.